Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Tēnā koutou katoa, everyone. It's great to see Peter Bale, co-host of The Hoon, here for another Friday evening chat session. Well, as, as usual, Bernard, you either look like you're broadcasting from your cell in Paramaramo or you're uh, <laughs> hiding in Kafia with this guy who's gone missing with his three children. Yeah. We, need to get you, we need to get you a slightly better backdrop, I think, you know, along with, like mine, the I blame the internet picture from England, but, you know. You're probably right. There needs to be some sort of, you know, backdrop of um, high-rise office blocks or... Um, or, or our own high-rise high real estate portfolio, since it's the only thing worth investing in. Yeah. Not to get you into housing already. Yeah. It's the land that really um, makes the money. Uh, That's so, right. Yeah. No, no. A picture of some grass, maybe looking out over the sea. That would be good. Oh, I can do the looking out over the sea. All right. Yes. Next week, I'll come with the view out from my yeah. uh, deck, if you like. That's deck for the, since you're working in Australia. This that's deck D E C K. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, and now that we're past the winter solstice, the sun will be staying up for Jesus, longer. Jesus, I, I was I made an appointment with somebody today to see them on September the first, and they said, "Oh, that's the first day of spring." And I thought, Jesus, thank God for that. This yeah. has been this has been a very difficult winter for me. It's long, isn't it? And it's been seven months of rain, and hopefully El Nino comes. Quick and oh, yeah, hopefully you'll <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. uh, because I could do with a bit of sun, and I think a lot of us could. It's been it's been a long winter, and uh, in all sorts of ways, it's starting to show. Um, just watching Parliament, there's a lot of grumpy people around, oh, and grumpy people in Parliament. Jesus, yeah, and even with the, Tre- Trevor Mallard gone to Ireland. Wow, that's the thing. Yeah, and uh, we're not far away from the election now. It's um. 57 days before people can start voting overseas and yep. um, a little bit longer before people can start voting a- ahead of time. So it's uh, we better get all these policies out before people start voting. Yeah. But I mean, we're going to be discussing quite some quite significant policies tonight, like a defense policy, which we'll, we'll talk about a bit later. Yes. Uh, and one of the things that I was thinking about with that was that this may well not be the party or the government that is implementing that and you know one of the things we could look at when when we get prof patman mm. on is to discuss whether the new zealand defense policy will change under jerry brownlee and uh whoever is the defense spokesman is it still penny henry no hang on no i got wrong party who is the, who is the national defense spokesman that is a very good question exactly yeah national doesn't even have one it'll be an act person probably yeah yeah no that's something i'll have to google at some yeah. at some point <laughs> excuse me you're supposed to be the political journalist here yeah no no it'll it'll be on my list somewhere um amongst my stack of papers so yeah. that will be um good to see and we've got josie pagani coming on towards the end of the show to uh talk about what's happening in Politics and also policies, because of course, with the new hoon, with the solutions journalism hoon, we are well, the attempt to do it. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you should, you know, hold yourself to that too hard. But I, I did remind you of that in our pre, our, you know, people won't imagine that we actually have a pre-conversation because it's usually so bloody uh, uh, haphazard. But you know, I, I think it is important not to get into the who will Winston turn to and who will, you know, I thought it was very interesting listening to Winston this morning. Who, you know. I, I just I can't really believe that I covered his entry into Parliament with two other idiots who aren't there anymore. But who, um, you know, he's he's the great survivor. But his thing this morning about oh mainstream media has discounted us. Christ, he uses he's like Nigel Farage. He uses mainstream media as his main instrument. That's he right. can hardly claim c- complain about that. You know, as, as there used to be a thing in Westminster that they'd say that politicians complaining about the media is like a fisherman complaining about the sea. Yeah, no, there's an element of that. And Winston has this weird sort of double act going on where he's all matey-matey before the camera's camera yeah. light turns red. And then he's, you know, bloody media, you know, they're useless and you can't trust them. Yeah, but I think what he's tapping into, he I mean, because he is also irritatingly astute, and what he's tapping into is a, is, is quite a substantial um, 
dislike of the media, including amongst my brother, who we haven't talked about for quite no. some months. But but uh, the thing is, if every all of those um, people who thought the media was corrupt and um, in the in the pockets of um, someone else actually saw how he dealt with the media and all other politicians, he is the ultimate insider. Uh, so this whole yes, you know, exactly. shtick of we are, you know, I'm here for the people, I'm not part of the Wellington establishment. Crimea River. It's just not true, but um, yeah, it's it's. Hopefully, we won't go too too deep into the into the this ruling in, ruling out. You yeah, know, no, I think it's, it's much him. more. I think it'd be much more interesting. And let's let's do it. We'll, we'll, and we'll look at the Sawalki Gap. And and I did find a little bit of a sort of uh, skateboarding dog for the end. Ah, great. But we always start off these days with the latest on the climate because it's it's like watching a um, a car crash of the planet. It's just something I cannot take my eyes off. Every morning I get up and I look at the latest charts and the latest records that come out from the climate. And yeah. uh, Catherine is doing a great job of um, keeping an eye on those as well. Can you tell us, you know, what what are some of the records we've seen this week? Yeah, it's been another startling week for our climate. So, there was a, a recent, recently came out or came out today, I think, that the month of July in total, global surface temperatures um, reached above 1.5 degrees Celsius versus pre-industrial era. So that's, wow, so we're there. That's the first full month where we've been there. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, obviously, as far as the Paris Agreement is concerned, they're interested in the long-term trend, and this is a one-month figure, so that doesn't kind of breach that level, but it's still pretty... It's a biggie. It's a bit bleak, isn't it? And for those people who see the chart, and my idea of a fun time is looking at the chart, which they, you know, you can lie with statistics and charts too, but it's pretty brutal when you see we're on a line and then in July of 2023 is boom. And the scale of the difference away from the norm, so to speak, is really something. Could you um, tell us about some of these numbers we're seeing in parts of the world? Well, South America in particular, they've been seeing temperatures mm. 10 to 20 degrees Celsius above normal. Yeah, there's no there's no winter this year. It's huge, yeah. Even in the Andes region in Chile, they were seeing temperatures up to 38.9 in midwinter. And that's with La Nina. Coming into El Nino, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I think it might be just as well for us to hunker down in New Zealand, really, and pull the pull the duvet off over us, unless it's too hot for duvets. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to have a um, we'll have to give up our duvets and just have sheets. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ! No, we'll have our only hunger blankets, thank you, and our you know Mosgiel blankets. Uh, yeah, I must say it's it's noticeable this winter. There's only been a couple of nights when I've had to have the the thick blanket on, and what struck me in Greece when it was hot, but not brutally hot, was, you know, you you really know when it's it's hot in the middle of the night. And that's something that, um, for example, in Phoenix, Arizona, they've just gone through July with the longest run of uh, 110 Fahrenheit. So we're talking 30... 43. 43? Yeah. For 30 days in a row for a city that is a heat sink. Yeah, which is also the fastest fastest growing city in the United States. And they've right? actually just gone back up to this kind of temperature. You know, So they've had that break. They, they broke the record, but now it's back up. And you may have seen The Guardian today had a very good piece, or interesting piece about the saguaro cactuses, the ones that look like oh, that. Yeah. Yeah. And some of them are dying. They're starting to die because of, they're running out of water. And this is a cactus, for God's sake. Now, yeah. Catherine, uh, we wanted to ask you about a, to slot in a news item into this as well. So Rishi Rishi Sunak uh, announced this week the uh, release of a hundred new gas and oil exploration licenses in the North Sea, and then proceeded to talk a total load of old bollocks about how it would defend the UK's energy dependence and that they they would actually save energy by not having to ship it from overseas. When of course it all goes into the bloody you know global energy pool and is not exactly kind of shielded off from everywhere. What what did you think of that? Well, it was a fantastical story, wasn't it? Like <laughs> some good storytelling abilities there. He also talked a lot about um, they're putting some more investment into carbon ca um, storage, ca yeah. carbon capture and storage, um, which is, you know, another, 
I think there was a whole, something like 700 scientists sent a petition to the government in the UK saying, you know, that basically there's a role for CSS, but it's not to offset continued burning of fossil fuels and to keep going the way that we're going. At best, you can kind of use it for some of those hard to get rid of emissions, like from aviation, for instance, but but to use it that way is just yeah. You know. It's really interesting. Also, and I and I read something about carbon capture the other day, which you know I think it was possibly in the New Yorker or somewhere, that, and it, and it really reminded me, you know, we've been talking. It's a little bit like some of the sort of um, smoking industry things about what's going to fix us, and and we know the same tactics have been been deployed by the fossil fuel industry, and and I do think that technology will save us from this at some point. But the there is a huge mm-hmm. difference between extracting. Uh, or, or taking the carbon dioxide from cement works and pumping it directly underground when it's high percentage, than trying to just take it out of the atmosphere where it's you know a tiny percent, relatively small percentage of the of the atmosphere. They haven't really kind of scaled up just how much space they've got on these underground cabins for all the stuff because you know within the um, IPCC's um, integrated assessment models, they've got a huge amount of what's known as BECs in there for the later latter half of the century, which is bioenergy, carbon capture and storage. Yep. So and that's to pull that's because we're expecting to go above two degrees and we're gonna have to pull, you know, carbon out of the atmosphere mm. um in order to go back below. So we're gonna have to have net well, we um, might have to have slightly cooler seas and a hell of a lot more forest to do that, right? Yeah. And uh, you know, the, I mean a, they're going to be competing for with agriculture for land to plant all these trees, and B, there's going to be a hell of a lot of competition for these underground caverns where they want to pump everything. Like it, none of this has been scaled up in terms. Oh, of- Oh, mind you, but when because we're because we're fracking everything to death, which I, we're not. There'll be a lot of holes. <laughs> can I just say also, I, and I don't want to sound like the apt um, energy spokesman, but I have been quite enthusiastic about fracking from certain point, points of view. Um, Catherine, when you when you saw the UK launch 100 new North Sea uh, licenses, did you wonder whether Jacinda Ardern was right to ban offshore exploration in New Zealand? Because I've always found that perplexing, given that it would probably be gas, and that gas is actually better than burning Indonesian coal at uh, Huntley. Uh, At some point, you have to sort of start to question whether it's possible for us to meet any of the targets we've set if we're just going to keep drilling and pulling that oil up. And and yeah, I think for a lot of people, they're just kind of accepting that we're probably not going to stop until we actually run out of the stuff. Um, Which was pretty much what what Rishi Sunak said was was just we're going to drill, baby, drill. But but then on the other hand, so talk about doomism. Yeah, Yeah, but but on the other hand. New Zealand does have a lot of gas, or it's it's mm. cho- but it's chosen to leave a lot of that gas. And isn't gas a really intelligent transition thing for New Zealand, or do we then get sucked into making the trans- transition to seem perpetual? I think it's less intelligent than just building more wind and you know renewable energy sources. Like why do you why do you want to transition when you could just go straight to those which are you know, che- cheaper than a lot of other things. Yeah, anyway. but we need to be able to turn on, as we, you know, as you know, and I know, we need to be able to turn on various sources for those dips. You know, and at the well, moment, that's the Huntley Power Station. You you can do these things with batteries, and rightly, we need yep. to come up with a solution to the dry year thing. And just a sneak preview of next week's when the facts change uh, interview. I've spoken to. Um, Is this on your other podcast, Bernard? Uh, yeah, I shouldn't be cross promoting yeah. a podcast, but one of your other podcasts. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I spoke to one of New Zealand's geothermal electricity experts, and we forget 20 to 30% of our uh, renewable electricity comes from geothermal, and we have hardly even touched the sides of or the depths of going to supercritical geothermal, which is where. Very, very, very hot steam actually is yeah. very efficient, and also the they're getting much better at capturing the actual carbon, the climate emissions that come out of the uh, the ground as well. So there's other options, and, and particularly, is it, is it contact energy that the week put in put in its application to replace the power stations at Wakaraki? Yeah, and uh, to get those consents again. So yeah, and they could because they're close to Auckland and where all the population lives. It may be a better solution to the dry year problem. And also, you know, we're, we're buying all these Teslas and Leafs and cars that have got batteries that at some point are not any good for a car, 
but they need to be pulled out of these cars and put into homes and various other places. Um, so we can start. Well, we to- can put them into your new new um, batch in Rakino. Yeah. Because yeah, no, I discovered that the place that I was recommending to you in Rakino doesn't, in fact, have electricity. But, Catherine, uh, I mean, what, 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 where are we going with all of this? One of the things Bernard wanted to ask you about, but I'm going to ask you instead, is, you know, the, the tone. Like, uh, you know, we talked maybe two weeks ago about something I'd done, and which was extremely negative. Well, not negative, just to try to point out just how horrific these things are, this change is at the moment. And, of course, you know, various people I know will in three months say, oh, it's just the bloody weather. I mean, wh- what would you like the discussion in New Zealand to be like about climate? Well, I, this came up just in, a, in an article today about Jim Skier, the new IPCC head, who was talking about how plus 1.5 degrees Celsius is not existential for humanity. And that that kind of looks to be part of a deliberate attempt to change the narrative around 1.5 as we're looking to sort of go right past it. They don't want people to to lose hope um, mm. and to, mm. you know, to despair. Um, and so they're trying to change the narrative around that. And, uh, you know, my view has always been when it comes to the serious, scarier parts of telling the story is that people's, you know, emotional reactions are a, a point in time. You know, they're an emotional reaction today, but then people process information and they move from one place to another mm-hmm. over time. So while they might feel despair one day, they'll feel hope the next, you know, and that's quite normal when you talk to anybody who works. Jesus, and- it sounds like my, are you my psychiatrist? <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> well, when you talk to any of the climate scientists on this, this is what they say. They say, well, some days I get out of bed and I feel real despair about this. And other days I get out of bed and I feel very hopeful about things that could happen. And so, some days I get out and I go, yeah, 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 I was right. <laughs> well, exactly. this, this is the thing. When you actually, um, and I'm on a particular strain of Twitter at the moment, where there are, they call themselves doomsters. They call themselves, you know, these are the, the, the doomer end of the climate spectrum. But as you say, Catherine, the research says that actually the people who are openly the most anxious, the most obviously worried are also the ones who are doing the most um, to to reduce their emissions. So I I do wonder uh, this strategy of essentially trying not to scare the horses actually means the, the horses slowly boil to death. Yeah, that came out of Yale Climate Communications. And I, I think historically, a lot of the research that's been done on this sort of thing, they get people in a room and they show them a bunch of really um, scary headlines, and then they go, well, how does that make you feel? And pe- mm. people, of course, are in a bit of shock and just go, I-, I don't feel like I can do anything, you know? And so they read that as, oh, people will see a scary headline and then they will they will despair and they won't want to take any kind of action. But of course, that, that's just a, a moment. We need to give people some positive things. So the nine listed by the Grantham Climate Institute at the um, Imperial College starts with political action. Um, you know, I, I was wondering, Catherine, with with the twenty fifty stuff and the twenty thirty and net zero. Uh, in fact, that person Bronwyn, who we had on Bernard, is is a bit of a skeptic about um, not to not to um, take her thunder or, or or misquote her, but a bit of a skeptic about some of the net zero things. But if you're Rishi Sunak and you're opening up a hundred new licenses, I don't. But you know, he's he knows he's not going to be the prime minister in twenty fifty. Mm. It's just not his problem. And, and it's much more cynical than that. And I, and I have a terrible feeling that, um, you know, all of the current generation of, of New Zealand politicians with the, I was just thinking of one exception, but I'll just remove her name from my mouth. But it, I just think that, you know, I'm a bit concerned that there there is no uh, deadline for them. Actually, there's a, a new piece of legislation in Australia that's been put forward by uh David Pocock. David yeah. Pocock, yeah. Mm. Um, working with a climate activist, and basically it would require politicians to consider younger generations or children when they're making these decisions. Yeah. Um, you know, and maybe that's what we need is yeah. actual legislation. Which that oddly says, is a really interesting, that actually, isn't that a Te Ao Maori idea as well that you, you know, with, with, with um, no doubt. you know, isn't there an expectation, Bernard and Catherine, that, that, that when Maori, uh, these Maori trusts are doing investments and so on, they say they're thinking on a multi-generational basis. Yeah, yeah. And, absolutely. Uh, and and there there is a good precedent uh, in Aotearoa for this with the, the treaty uh, now being uh, integrated into many new pieces of legislation across the board. And if you had one of these David Pocock style um, pieces of um, 
always think about the intergenerational effects before you make any decision, you'd get some different decisions. And sometimes if you stop trusting politicians to do the right thing by everyone in the long run, maybe you need to embed something in legislation to make them do it. That's very interesting. What, what, mm. What's happened, by the way, before we get speaking of emissions and we get to Robert, but what's what's happened to the uh, the well-being agenda in New Zealand now that Jacinda's not there? Is it still there i haven't i haven't heard much talk of it lately in my in my view it's now descended into a a well-being washing exercise um there's mm. a lot of greenwashing around but there's also a lot of well-being washing and i think that i mean i've been calling bullshit on it for a couple of years now because whenever you talk about well-being well it's been successful bernard well i'm having a crack um, uh, what it actually means is if you're serious about reducing poverty fixing housing fixing the climate you actually need to spend some money and invest some money and have a different tax structure and do the things that lose your votes. Otherwise, you're not being really serious. And they, to be frank, haven't been. It's bought time. It's washed away time um, before actually uh, things hit the fan. And and actually, at the moment, they are hitting the fan in all sorts of ways. And uh, I'm at the point of calling bullshit on this stuff. So Great. Let's, we'll let's get somebody in from... from um... I'll dig up dig up a group that's because I think that's so interesting to talk about that multi generational approach. Mm. I, I fear that the next government may not be quite as minded to listen to the Teo Maori perspective as the current one. But I think it'll be really interesting to get that perspective about a, a multi generational view. Mm. Thank you very much, Catherine. Lovely to lovely to have you on again. It's great to have you, you. have you in here. Thanks very much. See you all later, uh, Robert. Lovely to see you. Hello. How are you? Today, a big day. Well, is it a big day, Bernard? Because I think it is a big day, and I just don't see it really reflected adequately in the New Zealand media yet. That defence statement is huge by by Andrew Little. The gobbledygook that he's talking in there, as we call it in journalism, gobbledygook, is pretty extraordinary. And um, our old friend Helen Clark called it. And what was really amusing is that Helen said, Jesus Christ, thank God we've got Robert Patman to, 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 to tell us to have an independent foreign policy. But Robert, Helen, Helen Clark was quoting you today. Yes, I think she had problems with my name, but everybody's having a bit of a joke about that. At least she didn't call me Batman, which my students do. <laughs> we do too sometimes. Yeah, Batman and Robin. I remember those were both. Yeah, but uh, yeah, no. Uh, it, it was interesting. I couldn't make the breakfast launch this morning. Um, uh, Defence Minister Andrew Little presided over three major documents. Uh, first of all, the the launch of the first New Zealand's first national security strategy, um, which is a first. And then, of course, there was the defence statement uh, and also the force design principles document. So, yeah, it was quite a, a big day, I guess, for people interested in security. And um, do you sense any big shift inside those strategy? They're always wrapped in very fluffy language, but sometimes there's, there is movement under the surface. W what did you take from the statements? Yeah, I mean, I think, I suppose, in one sense, there was a welcome recognition that uh, New Zealand does need to do more to... Uh, on defence and security, uh, we've been for a long time. There's been a, a bipartisan agreement that we should spend more than one percent of GDP, and that um, means often we're very limited in contributing to international arrangements yeah. to for in our security interests. I think yes, the, there's a recognition that we've got to become much more proactive. Uh, it, after he delivered his speech this morning, apparently Andrew Little said at a press briefing he doesn't envisage. Uh, defence spending reaching 2% of GDP, but somewhere between. It's around about 1% at the moment. So that was good in that sense. But I think the document's slightly disappointing in the sense that it made some good noises, but it didn't say anything about the relationship between New Zealand and AUKUS, which is an issue no. at the moment. No. And secondly, it didn't actually you know, say exactly what its spending commitments would be. It was very much an aspirational document. The other thing that struck me is that, and I just quote from this, we take the world as it is, not how we would like it to be. Um, which, which suggests that we have no capacity to change it, which you've been advocating the other way for a long time. And that's linked to two key trends that 
all the documents were based on, and these were as follows. Firstly, there is intensification of great power rivalry. Well, that's been great power rivalry hasn't gone away for the last thirty years. It, yes, it's got more more pronounced recently. The second thing is is climate change, and um, yes, I, I agree that both of these factors are very relevant. What I found lacking, um, and this is you know, uh, I thought the the, the documents recognise. And I think it was Admiral Short who mentioned this point, that he said the international rules-based system was what guaranteed New Zealand's stability, security, and prosperity. Right, I agree with that. But the point is, surely that would have been one of the trends that New Zealand should have be including in its strategic thinking. We are not powerless on that front. And the fact of the matter is, we need to tackle international institutions which allow Russia to invade a neighbor which allowed mm. China to basically claim 90% of the South China Sea. That's unacceptable to us, and we need to start having rules which really seriously get in the way of states which have aggressive or expansionist goals. And so yeah. I, I'm a bit disappointed that's not part of our strategic thinking at the moment. That's not wishy-washy. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a reluctance to accept a status quo which is making us insecure. Yeah, and Robert, you've, you've been very... Um strong, particularly in the Jacinda Ardern years, about the idea that New Zealand could did have the capacity and the charisma from her and so on to to find those like-minded countries. And one of the interesting reactions I've seen to the to the Andrew Little thing is that it might push us away further from the, some of the Pacific countries who want a more independent view than just being, you know, at the mercy of a kind of US uh China axis. Well it's interesting, isn't it? One uh point that Helen Clark and, and Jeffrey Miller have highlighted, which is, I think, point 59 in the defense document, it alludes to the fact that we may increase cooperation uh, in the technological area with um, under pillar two of AUKUS. Whether that is a suggestion that we're going to move to it or not, uh, I don't know. But I, I think that I don't think we should underestimate the importance that Pacific Island states attach to our non-nuclear security exactly. commitment. Mm. Exactly. It's not a quick, you know, I, I don't doubt the government's being sincere when they say we're not going to do anything to compromise that, but we can't control other people's perceptions. Mm. And we were a key leader, and, and I think most people in this country would be pleased to know this, we were a key leader in the treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons in 2022, which more than 50 states have signed mm. up to. And we did the rounds in ASEAN and uh, the Pacific Island states to get their support. And they got it because both ASEAN and the Pacific Island states, both of them respectively, have commitments to uh, non-nuclear security and therefore are not very happy about the transfer of nuclear-powered submarines to Australia. One of the things that I thought Helen Clark was really interesting on, and she has the historical perspective on this, both from the Longy government and her own work, and and I've written a little bit about this in uh, my old North and South column, which regrettably is no more, and we've possibly talked about it here, which is the role of officials. And you do tend to get, I mean, she, she suggests in her tweets, which talk about you today and, and remind us all what a fabulous chap you are, oh. that... The government is possibly being being held hostage in a sense by uh, New Zealand MFAT and defence officialdom, which we know is historically very close to the Americans, very influenced by the Americans, loves the Five Eyes arrangement, and that they have a that 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 sort of um, blob, to use an English word, has a a tendency to push New Zealand towards alliance with the United States when rather than an independent David Longyish kind of foreign policy. I, I don't think that's fair. I think there's lots of people in Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, Defence and Foreign Ministry. I think you have a range of views there. I don't think you should assume they all agree with each other on this. I, I'm just, uh, you know, my, my sense is that this is an attempt for New Zealand to up its game in the defence and national security yes. area. It's an aspirational document. I welcome that. Because I don't think we've taken foreign policy and defence and security seriously enough for a long time. It's only recently that the foreign minister has been relieved of 
the local government position and it can concentrate. Mm -hmm. And we've already seen, I, I think, uh, Nanaima Huta is doing a really good job. But one of the reasons is, is because she's not being overstretched in the way she was before. Yeah, no, I think mm -hmm. you're right. And, and, and mm -hmm. I think we've got to take, uh, you know, for too long in this country, appointments around defence and foreign affairs have been very much driven by domestic political concerns. I think we need now to seriously, and I think it's being done, uh, to recognise that we, amongst the developed world, depend critically on our international environment. Uh, I think it's 29% of our GDP goes in agricultural exports or something like that. And so we have a big stake in having a stable international order. At the same time, that order um, is not just the way it is. We need to improve it. Mm. And I, I that's where I'm slightly disappointed. It seems to be accepting a view of the world the way it is, but I think it should also be, for an aspirational document, what's to raise our game? I think we should not only just react to growing US-China rivalry and, and also react to the, you know, the looming challenge of climate change, I think we need an anticipatory dimension as well as a reactive dimension where we try to shape, albeit we're a modest power, uh, our shape, our international environment in a way that is going to prove, improve life for future New Zealanders uh, in the world. Okay. Well, do we do we have, Robert, this is, this is slightly arcane, but it's not actually arcane because Bernard and I have talked about this. Maybe we've talked about this before, but there was a time when everybody knew who the um who the head of MFAT was and who the head of the defense department was and we used to see the prime minister's office particularly under you know Norman Kirk even Muldoon probably you know I'm thinking of Don McKinnon and various other we used to see the civil servants more visibly yeah do we have the, do, have we do we still have a ministry of foreign affairs with a strong enough policy strategic push to survive these kind of bumps of having three-year governments which are a bit more sort of uh, media savvy. I mean, my impression is that is that McCulley really changed New Zealand foreign affairs for the worst. Uh, I'm not sure about that. I mean, he did some good things as well. He did certainly upset, in fact, because in his first year, I think he he had a bit of a shakeout and about 80 very talented people mm. left. And uh, I think since then, to, to his credit, Winston Peters has rebuilt when he was foreign minister. He put a lot more investment. I welcome the fact overall that these documents, I think, are pushing us in a direction where we're taking foreign affairs and security much more seriously. But they are aspirational. We haven't yet got firm commitments. We don't know exactly what direction we're going in. I think there is a recognition that welcome recognition since the Christchurch terror atrocity that we're not immune to what's happening in the rest of the world. And uh, one thing that did come out of this was a, a real commitment to focus in particular our security efforts in the Pacific Islands region. And so coming back to your point, Peter, uh, if we're doing that, then we must listen to their concerns. What, one thing that um, struck me looking at that um, that document and the chatter is that, and again, this is me looking at the financial aspects of things and judging that if you're really serious about it, show us the money, because yep. both National and Labor have made no comments really about substantially increasing the share of spending on defence, and um, it's relatively low, certainly compared to Australia and others, and low compared to rising um, spending as a share of defence. Poland, for example, more than 3% of GDP they're putting into defence. Oh, are you doing a segue to the Sawalki gap? <laughs> I Jesus, that was good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in a minute. Yeah, But um, I, think, I think, Bernard, though, to be fair, um, I think uh, it, this may be a prelude to precisely what you're describing, mm. that they are getting people used to the idea uh, that we're not a long way from everywhere and relatively safe. Mm. And I think they're saying, actually, the world's a much more dangerous place than we had assumed. In the documents, they say we're no longer in a benign environment. In fact, we haven't been in a benign environment uh, for the past 30 years, probably longer than that. So, But that was the phrase that was used up to about 2001, I think. Or maybe was it around 2001, just before 9-11, I think um, Helen Clark once used that phrase. But 
I'm not sure that's the case, and it's certainly not the case now. And to give you an idea, Peter, the National Party's defence spokesperson is Tim Vanden Molen. Oh, yeah. Tim, Timo, who is is not even on the um, in the top twenty of nationals list, and I actually think if there is a change of government, nationals' approach to defence spending and its approach to China will become a point of contention with our Five Eyes partners, given the sorts of comments we've seen in the last week from Christopher Luxon about welcoming in Belt and Road um, spending. And I'm surprised, actually, that we haven't seen a, an, a the Labour Party, in, who must be getting pretty desperate now, decide to unleash on national, on foreign affairs, which is not normally an election topic. But Robert, thank you very much for, for being with us. It's been lovely. Thank you. Now, Josie, are you in the Koru Club somewhere? No, I'm I'm in a tiny little kind of cell I, um, that, uh, in an office somewhere in central Wellington. I just wondered whether you were a member of what Bernard calls the Koru Club class that sort of run New Zealand, which of course you are. Yeah, but I, I don't pay for it though. I just kind of accidentally keep getting it extended, but yeah. Of course. Ah, yeah, that's good. I tailgate. I tailgate into the Koru Lounge. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> or you, as you call it, the Kaka Lounge. We just had, um, uh, uh, I've just listened to your stuff with Robert and um, we had a, the, the first foreign affairs trade oh, yeah. and aid debate last night with Jerry Brownlee. Mm. And the one time that I tailgated Bernard into the Coro Club was after going on Q&A and calling for Jerry Brownlee to be uh, fired from his job. <laughs> and then uh, we went and he and he said, would you like to come into the Coro Club and got me in on a free ticket and we sat there and for the whole afternoon. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we should all call for more people to be sacked more often, I think. Yeah. That's um, that's the way to go. Lovely to see you. And um, we might as well jump straight into this uh, these comments from Christopher Luxon about uh, roads, NZTA, and transport, because your column this week has a, is a, a, a bracing bucket of cold water in the in the faces of the green supporters who you know are shocked and and outraged that Christopher Luxon is saying roads should be repaired and expanded. What, what do you think of the National Party's approach, which is very much as Christopher Luxon says, we want NZTA, Waka Kotahi to prefer building roads to reducing emissions? I think, Bernard, the answer to that question is we, you know, somehow we need to get beyond the kind of tribal knee-jerk reactions on transport because we need you know, a bit of everything. And the idea that we don't need to do and, and update our roads, which most of them date back to the 1920s, um, and they're, they're hopelessly unsafe in many places. And if we want regional development in places like the East Coast or Northland, We've got to have roads so that people can live there and get out of there and work there and businesses can set up there and so on. So I think the point I was trying to make was, and I actually did this with a a friend of mine in in Copenhagen in a a dark and danky um, uh, bar basement in a little cave. And we listed all the things that are right wing and all the things that are left wing. And it's like, you know, right wing, roads, you know, anything big, talkback radio, uh, mullet haircuts, you know, so on. And anything left wing was things like, you know, public transport, uh, ballet, bicycles, kale, bicycles, yeah, and anything small, you know. And so somehow we've got to get out of that mentality of thinking that if you're on the left of politics, it's, you know, public transport or nothing. And if you're on the right of politics, it's roads and trains and buses are, you know, communist. I'm always looking for interesting. (laughs) (laughs) We're, we're We're always looking for interesting combinations, unlikely alliances that actually make progress in politics. You know, when you when you see, for example, the very far right and the very far left coming together, for example, to clamp down on forests, uh, pine forests, um, or uh, often you have this interesting alliance between conservatives on the far right who don't want um, development in rural areas, and then conservatives on the far left who also don't want development yeah, in rural areas. Yeah. You get, but Josie, Josie and I, Roberta. I mean, after we had lunch the other day, and I said to you, we, I, I'm, I'm slightly nervous that I completely agree with Nationals' road program. <laughs> you know, you um, said, but we need a bloody rail program. I didn't realise Josie and I were so close on so many things. Well, uh, yes. no, but, but Peter, I, I am from the left of politics. I must have missed the memo 
when roads became right wing. So if you go back to this is the point in my column, you go I live up in Kapiti, you go back to the the, the launch of the, the the building of the Centennial Highway, which is this piece of road that was built in nineteen thirty-nine uh, on the coast between Wellington in and the Centennial. And Kapiti, yeah. yeah. In the Centennial, yeah, good. Well spotted. Um and and that was and you know it was launched with great nation building fanfare by Labour Minister Bob Semple mm-hmm. under a Joseph Savage, you know, Michael Joseph Savage government. So there was a sense of nation building, of building stuff to make us prosperous and Absolutely. independent, and so on. So you know the idea that roads have, have I mean EVs have got to drive on roads for goodness sake, you know. So the idea that roads are not a part of that, or rather a multi multi layered transport plan. It's not something that we can't all get behind without, you know, we can have politics around, you know, where the spending goes and how much and whatever. But roads, have co- of course, have got to be part Absolutely. of Absolutely. I don't know why Labour has become, I mean, I remember, before I stop ranting about this, but up in Kapiti. No, 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 we, 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 please go, please keep going. Please keep Peter, ranting, Peter's right. enjoying it, yeah. <laughs> this was like, I don't know, twenty before the 2017 election. So, so you know, we had Labour MPs, local Labour MPs in Kapiti protesting against the Kapiti Expressway. Now, you know, even outside Parliament, there were demonstrations. Today, you would get Kapiti residents, friends of mine, you would get them protesting if we didn't extend the expressway all the way up to Levin and beyond. So, you know, the idea. You mean mean so that they can get to their get to their batches and their and their you know farmers markets in Levin on a Saturday morning? No, I I don't mean that at all, Peter. I actually mean the opposite (laughs) because that's the thing about the a transport an idea of transport that doesn't include. Unfortunately, driving cars because we have to drive cars is a way of excluding working class people, actually, exactly. and not giving working class kids the same freedom of movement that middle class kids have because they can, you know, um, drive around in their Lexus EV mm-hmm. or their Tesla. I can see how that th- there is a way through here, actually. And I think part of the reason this has become such a divisive and hot issue is just the sheer huge numbers involved in some of the public transport projects, the light rails, the let's get Wellington moving. So, the, mm. You know, we're talking 10, 20 billion at a time and, you know, 10 years before anything happens. And I can see why a lot of people, just from a, you know, how dare they spend my money on that uh, point of view, are grumpy. And this is where I think there's a way through, which is uh, for the, you know, fiscal conservatives to get together with the the green side of politics, which is actually anti very heavy rail and very big, you know, tunnels and and actually starts to use some of the roads to share them with public transport and cycling and walking. Have these guys heard about containerization, Bernard, for God's sake? Because Well, because you've got to, you know, got to have big tunnels to move bloody containers from Auckland to Wellington or from Whangarei to Auckland. Well, you know, this this is where the green, this is where the greenies would say, yes, expand Mm. and improve your rail line so you can take some freight off the roads. Sure, but in the meantime, main freight is going to be delivering it all. You know, if you drive down the desert road, it is completely ludicrous that cars should have to, or and bicycles should have to share that highway with four hundred million trucks going to and fro. Well, take just. Just take the trucks off and the cars off and well, leave it to the cyclists. You can do that to a certain extent, Bernard, but then like 90- What, delivering kale between to food to, to, to New World? Well, no there's way. some very good electric bikes that have- But Josie, how do we solve this? Because Bernard's talking about you know a kind of nirvana here. It's got to be a transition. Those, the, you know, It's going to be expensive to do all this stuff. I love no, what you just I'm said so, about I'm it. I'm saying it should be cheap and fast, which yeah. is- But it can't be. But I love what you said about a national mission, Josie, that the-, the 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 capital yeah. thing was done, you know, the T rail, the the, the um, spiral, and all of these things that we used to be proud of. Yeah, you know, can't but, we just blast through a couple of TGVs between here and Auckland to take all the pressure? Yeah, and Bernard's right though that you do need to go, you need to push back on the right as well, and go that if we had more frequent, um, more regular, more reliable trains and buses. You can do that. You can do that, especially in the cities. We can get better at what we've already mm. got without being overly ambitious, you know, without going, let's spend, what is it now, $28 billion on an Auckland light rail. You know, I mean, that's just ludicrous amount of money. It's not It's not going to happen because it's too much money. Yeah. So what we can do is get much better, as you say, Bernard, of, of just yeah, get, getting the, the buses to and from the airport, getting the getting what we've got working better. And faster. Public transport and faster. And also realising that we need roads, right? We and, need and better roads. Because it's, re- it's really interesting. I'm, I'm actually of the view now that these huge rail projects 
are politically impossible to sustain. And also, when you do the carbon accounting on them, because of the huge holes that yeah. are dug, the, the embedded carbon in the steel and the concrete, you actually don't start reducing emissions because of these railways for another 15 years. And that's too long. Exactly. So let's build some decent roads and we'll get the new Tesla trucks for main freight and main freight can have those, you know, ethical signs on the uh, back of their trucks and it'll and, be fine. And you can move. put tow bars on, on the electric bikes, you know, and, you can and do and some also, great things. You know, we can look at it through the lens of carbon emissions. You're right. And we can look at it. But I, th what I'm also challenging people to do is look at it through the lens of regional development. And, you know, we've talked about regional development for decades and bits of it have been done. And then, you know, you look, you go up north, you go to the east coast, there's just nothing um, happening there that's that's hopeful and um, giving opportunities to people there. So, so you've got to look at how it is we're going to grow the regions. We're not going to do, you're not going to suddenly have 24-hour bus services in the regions. It's just not going to happen. So in the meantime, we've got to upgrade those roads and, yeah, put big roads going through up to north and yeah, the good the good thing, Josie, is that we might have New Zealand first in, and we'll have a um uh, a regional development fund uh -huh. of several billion dollars, um and a and a couple of lunatics to spend it. Bernard wants to move on to to various um gaps, not the Sawalki gap, but yes. the but the budget gap. I am not. I refuse to call it a hole. Good. The budget deficit and the fiscal gap. Uh, have come to up into the uh, political sphere this week. Uh, it seems like every election campaign, there there is this horrible debate that goes on. People point at each other and go, fiscal gap. And um, uh, we had Stephen Joyce have, have a crack at it during the 2017 campaign. I think it was a crucial moment when uh, he was, that the failed to- million, The 11 yeah, million. Yeah, yeah that, mm. that failed to resonate. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing it again this time. Winston Peters just popped up and said, 20 billion. And we saw a, a Nicola Willis slightly uncomfortable in Parliament with her, with her accidental joke, but still saying fairly angry and extraordinary things about our fiscal situation. How do you think uh, Labour is going to approach this? Because on September the 12th, we've got the pre-election fiscal update, which sort of sets the the ground rules and you know the politics of it are quite you know difficult now um the the whole mood is about let's tighten our belts let's spend less let's worry about inflation and i wonder if this gets traction this time i think if you remember back to that stephen joyce 11 billion hole that's in the 2017 election it would have caused more of a dent for labor i think if there hadn't been this huge Euphoria around this charismatic young woman, um, uh, you know, as as the potential prime minister. So, I what I think the problem is here is rather than going into is it a whole, um, just accepting that actually it's a problem for Labour now because there's a kernel of truth there, Bernard, even if you don't accept as a whole. And the kernel of truth is a there was a meeting with the public sector leadership, to, and we assume to say you know cut back, but but more importantly, there's a narrative out there that whether it's you know, I mean, these numbers are just extraordinary and preposterous, right? Whether it's, you know, $20 billion hole or um, a $7 billion deficit or whatever it is, what people see is a government that hasn't spent the money that it's got well. That's what that's the narrative that's, that I think has stuck for Labour. It's going to be weird, even if people, because people aren't going to pay attention to the numbers, right? They're just going to go, oh, you know, there's a hole. And, you know, Labor's being accused of, of not spending the money or, you know, getting into debt and not spending the money properly. And that's the problem for them, that, you know, when you look at, we talked about light rail, you look at Bacon, so you look at the $1.9 for mental health, and people are going, where's it gone? How's it been spent? So it all bleeds in politically. The narrative just kind of consolidates around this idea that they're not good managers of money and the money they have spent, they've spent badly and then they've overspent, which may be completely unfair. I mean, there's what, $23 billion uh, deficit uh, deficit during COVID, during 1920. And that, and that, mon that money. legitimate. Yeah. But it went, to, it went to large and small businesses who put it in the bank as cash. And that's, that's the sort of great irony here. You're right, that's the narrative that's out there. It's very hard to change people's minds once once it's been planted but um yeah no i've, I've had a go in a piece today at uh, unraveling some of those numbers and pointing out actually 
that on the very day that um, uh, Nicola Willis was accusing the government of being fiscally irresponsible and having lost control of the of the fiscal situation, uh, we had fund managers um, bidding uh, more than two times the amount of bonds on offer and paying just four point eight percent for it when inflation's six percent. So essentially. And we're, gr- triple, and we're triple A rated when the United States has just been double A minus rated, right? Yes. So, um, double A plus, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. So the, this is something which um, it frustrates me, I suppose, and I and I am mm. keen to push back against it, this obvious narrative that, of course, National are better running the economy and running the, the government's accounts than Labor, when actually the track record shows that Labor is the one that's reduced the deficits the most, and uh, mm. Labor is the one with a higher growth rate across the Which various... is weirdly the same with the Democrats and the Republicans in the United yeah, States. exactly. And to some extent or lesser extent, the Conservatives and, you know, But weird. the problem is people don't look at the numbers. They go, how do I feel? And I feel poorer than I did, you know, a few years ago, let alone before COVID, but during COVID. And you mm. look at, you know, we are in an, a weaker economy than we thought we were, were going to be at this stage. It is zero, you know, we're looking at 0% growth. None of that is particularly good. It may not be, you know, I'm not saying it's it's the government's fault but the point is people don't feel that things that their lives are good or that they're they're um doing okay financially Jesse, so- let me, may, may i ask you a media question about that because again we had uh, a friend of mine on recently to talk about solutions journalism and bernard that thing that you just described about people not feeling is that is that contributed to by an unintelligent approach to reporting to you know, if you if you think about where we are in, in interest rates and growth in New Zealand at the moment, Adrenor would appear to be have gone down the right path relative to say the UK. Just are we are we not sophisticated enough in reading this and and reporting this? I, I think that implies though, Peter, that you know people are, are sort of taken in by you know. I mean, I believe this about just information and and you know that, that they're taken in by by. A misreading of you know, somebody reporting something badly or whatever. I don't. I don't agree that people are that stupid. You know, I think they're basically going. I don't feel very well off, and I and you know, I don't feel that my wages, even if wages have gone up, mm. feel like they've gone up sufficiently for inflation. So I, 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 th- I don't think that there's. Um, I don't think it's the problem of media kind of misrepresenting it. I think, you know, that the, the economy is weaker than we thought it would be at this stage. It's, it's none of the signs look particularly good, I and mean, we are in a technical recession. Actually, America um, has been remarkable in the sense that it's mm. you know, um, unemployment hasn't ballooned, its interest rates are going down, and so on. I mean, the good news is that we will know exactly what the situation is when the prefund comes out, right? The pre-election mm. um, economic fiscal update before the election. So no new government is going to be able to go in and go, oh, it's much worse. The hole is even bigger than we thought. You know, they're not going to be able to do that because we will have a very clear mm. idea. My only worry about Treasury's report is it'll be full of things like circular economy and well-being and that we'll have no idea what they're, what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. It'll be a massive hole and it'll be a donut hole. And we won't <laughs> see what's happening. But yeah. we will, yeah, hopefully we will, we will know. But donuts are bloody delicious despite having a hole in the middle. Now, Josie, one of our, one of our very active um, participants on the, on the YouTube chat, uh, Francis, is asking that we, we make sure that we do, in fact, address this question that Luxem was asked this week about China, China and investing in roads. Now, mm. what, what do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, my view about that. It, so we did this debate last night, and I actually asked Jerry Brownlee because Brooke Van Brooke Van Velden was there from ACT, mm. Jerry Brownlee from National. Clearly, this is a big differentiation for them, right? So, so it's true that National, um, the National Party here, our our, our centre right party, is a lot less hawkish on China than mm. the Tory Party in the UK or or, or you know, other other centre right parties around the world, which is really interesting. And ACT are being much more muscular about it right you know they do not want chinese uh, uh um they be dependent financially on china i mean if you look at it independently you go what is it what is the difference really of us i mean we sell bonds government bonds and and china buys them i mean the other you know we don't say you can't buy our government bonds so i'm not if you're doing a ppp public private partnership i'm not sure that it, that if, it, if the due diligence stacks up why mm. we wouldn't take money from China, where we, whereas we would from the US or the UK? Or well, it is called the Belt and Road Project. Yes, yeah, they do build roads. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, and then they belt you when you don't pay the money. 
But yeah, I think but- it, I think it was a, and and Jerry Brownlee last night just kind of snapped it down and said, "Look, this is a nonsense debate. It was a throwaway line, maybe another of Luxon's throwaway lines, like you know, let's all go have babies, um, that becomes a story that they didn't really intend it to be. But there is certainly a political difference there between National and Act. Yeah, and I I, I think that the other members of Five Eyes are worried about how loose and open the National Party in New Zealand, unlike every other Conservative Party in the Five Eyes, is to uh, Chinese investment, uh, Chinese involvement in the economy, connections with China, when it's it's very clear now that Chinese influence campaigns have been active in New Zealand and other places like Canada. Um, uh, Trudeau looks like he's going to lose the next election based on the uh, scandals around it. And this approach from Luxon is going to be out of line with our partners, apart from other conservative parties, and he'll have to get he'll have to be pushed back into his box once he's if he's in government. Yeah, but Bernard, we are trying really hard, and again, this is what came up in the debate last night. We're try- and and there was quite good cross party consensus around this. We're trying very hard to have an independent foreign policy, and and we are not at war with China. We don't intend to go. At the war mm. with China, um, if the, it, you know that the, the, they are they are our friend, we're a critical friend of China, but they are our friend, and and we have issue, you know, we we have uh, called them out on human rights issues, we've called them out on 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 treatment of Uyghurs, um, but they are our trading partner, and we have no intention of of suddenly treating them as if they're they're not um a, a, you know a an, a friend that we do business with, even if we're yeah. a critical friend. And I think we have to be really careful about it. Because the, the worst thing that could happen right now, and listening to Robert uh, was really interesting, that you know, I don't think we're going to war, but it feels like there's a lot of war games going on. And New Zealand was part of one in Australia just this week. We're 11 mm. countries, the biggest joint military um, um, training operation ever. Um, but you know, the, the worst, the, the biggest risk is that an accident happens. You know, the Archduke yeah. turns up and gets yeah. shot, and then we're suddenly at war. You know, at, um, at like the First World War, and you kind of go, well, even if, if that that's the worst case scenario, if that happens, we're still not going to pick. You know, Ottoman Empire over the Austro-Hungarian Empire. We're still going to try and forge some kind of independent foreign policy, defence policy, trade policy, and so on. You know, it's really difficult. But the idea that we would you know, suddenly shut down um, we, uh, our relationship. We had, we, had, we had a former trainer of Chinese spies at the head of the Foreign Affairs and Select Committee who resigned quietly and the National Party have never had a reckoning of what's happening there or the amount of money that comes from United Front parties through not just the National Party, they used to come through the Labour Party as well, that um, in every other country in the world is deemed to be some pretty aggressive influence campaigning. Absolutely, uh, yeah, I and, agree with. You. Yeah, and and when you look at uh, you know how these Belt and Road projects have worked out in other countries, Sri Lanka had to hand the port over to the Chinese military after they defaulted on the payments. And I think, given the growing role of Five Eyes and how we operate in the world and the way that Xi Jinping is um, throwing his weight around. I I think at some point we're going to have to choose and I, I think we choose the West. So so I think, Bernard, just to push back on that a bit, though, uh, if you look at the Pacific... Yeah, you do before uh, I do, Josie. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> our, our, our Pacific partners, you know, our, our phenomena, our extended family in the Pacific are saying, hey, actually, we might be better at navigating this than you guys. You know, we need your help with some of the stuff you just mentioned in terms of uh, um, indebtedness and, um, inf- you know, influence. But, but rather than going, yeah, you've got to get China out of the Pacific, we need to look at ourselves and go, so what are we... What is the Pacific asking us to do that we're not doing that they're getting from China? It's access to markets. PNG, you can get visa-free uh, um, entry into China if you're from Papua New Guinea. Um, so they're getting access to markets. They're getting uh, labor mobility, um, and they're getting money, and they're getting and they're, they're being able to make their own decisions about what they spend the money on. Then they're getting into huge debt. <laughs> but the, our reaction to that should be: what what can we offer that's better than what China's offering? I completely agree with that. And, you know, for example, we should have a Schengen free movement of labour region yes. across the South Pacific. And, well, we're and just about to have it between New Zealand and Australia, aren't we? 
but not, it should include Tonga, Samoa, Fiji, um, New yeah. Caledonia, and also the Solomon Islands. Um, and all the employers in Australia and New Zealand would love it, and so would those families in uh, the Pacific. I'm sure there'd be a lot more movement back and forth, but the, the money that gets sent back to the islands and then used to build schools and, and yeah. doctors' uh, clinics yeah. and those sorts We're just of not very imaginative about some of this, are we? No. Josie, would you would you and would you and Raf Manji please form a party and you know we, you could be dictators you know charming dictators it'd be fine now <laughs> with Bernard yeah roll over Eva Peron I'm I'm yeah, on my yeah. way <laughs> and on that note uh, Josie thank you very much for being with us it's lovely to have you on again and uh, great to see you and we hope we can have you back again next week see you Josie thanks guy. Uh, a Peter, uh, a skateboarding dog. Do you have one? Well, I do have a skateboarding dog, but also we wanted to talk about the Sawalki Gap. We can talk about that another time. Sawalki Gap is between Poland, Latvia, and uh, Kaliningrad. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and it's this idea that the Russians might connect it up. We've talked about it before. You know, expect to hear more about the Sawalki Gap, which is nothing to do with Gap, the um, fashion shop. So, yeah, I did have a little one. It's a sort of punny one, Bernard which is a nice little story about what I, I consider to be a, a police sting operation, which is that uh, some thief in Wales has stolen 14 beehives. That sounds painful. And, yeah. And, I, mean, yeah. I, I must... look forward to the police going into that. <laughs> you missed the sting. You missed my pun. Oh, All right. I'm, I'm hopeless. Jesus uh, Christ. On that note, yeah. have a great weekend, uh, everyone. Uh, and I'll see you shortly, Bernard, up the road, right? Fish and chips, yeah, no, it'll be yeah. Good. Well, we don't. don't sh- 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 you don't want to say that because all of our <laughs> listeners in Hern Bay, there'll be, there'll be, there'll be, buddy, the the paparazzi will be there. Oh the yeah, paparazzi sure. in this the case. Chipper- oh, this is good. Thank you very much, everyone. Catch you later. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you. <laughs>